What I'd like to do today as we pick up in this text that our elder Ryan Nelson read for us, look over to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verse 12 and 13. The Psalm 37, verse 12 and 13 contain for us a statement that the passage that was just read depicts. In Psalm 37, 12 through 13, the Psalm of David gives us insights into exactly what we read. Insights that help us to set accurate expectations. Our expectations, when you think about it, really determine our outlook of most all of life. From relationships to work responsibilities. If our expectations are not appropriately set, they can leave us walking away either discouraged or extremely optimistic. Expectations. Our text today gives us a very literal historical example of the expectations that we have ought to have for those that live godless lives. That is, they do not fear God as the Hebrew midwives did last week, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so let me read for you Psalm 37, 12 through 13, uh, these two components that we'll see demonstrated this morning, that we ask God to give us each a more accurate understanding that will lead forth to more accurate praying and living. Let me read Psalm 37, 12 and 13. It says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. Now that's what we see in our text. We'll see today how Pharaoh continues to plot against the Hebrew people. He's not ceased by the Hebrew midwives fearing of God. He continues on. He gnashes his teeth against the righteous, that is, those who reflect the nature and character and commands of God. They abide in the Lord. So the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but what happens in verse 13? But the Lord laughs at the wicked. This is an anthropomorphism. This is taking language associated to us as creation and giving it to God. Is God literally laughing? Yeah. Uh, no, but this is demonstrating for us. Psalm 2 does the same thing, uses the same description of God. That though the wicked plot, the Lord laughs at them. Why? He laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day, the day of their judgment, is coming. The Lord is all-knowing and all-powerful and present. And so though we read Exodus verse by verse and we gain knowledge, if this is your first time through the book of Exodus, you, you gain more insights as the plot develops every week as we walk through this book verse by verse. But what do you gain? What does God gain in comparison? God does not gain in knowledge. God is all-knowing. And so though the wicked plot, he laughs at their plots. In our text this morning, that's exactly what we see unfolding. And if and if we could cover more of Exodus, we'll see again and again and again God's humor and the irony of the way things will take place. Pharaoh will plot with all the power of the strongest man on the earth at the time, and yet God will laugh at him, foiling his plans left and right in incredibly ironic and hilarious ways. So let's begin as we pray that the Lord would set our expectations appropriately. We see from the very beginning in verse 22a, the very first portion of the verse that we ought to expect people who do not fear God to act like they do not fear God. Expect people who do not know God, and we know the Father by way only of the Son. If you don't know Jesus, and you have friends and family and co-workers and others all around the nations, all around the world, that do not know Jesus, we ought to expect them to live like they do not know Jesus. 
Expect people who do not fear God to act like they do not fear God. We saw last week that midwives feared God and therein they acted like they feared God. They refused to let their hands be instruments of a Hebrew boy infanticide. There's an expectation. And so when we come to this Pharaoh's response to it, we should not be surprised when we read that he will not cease acting as though he does not know the righteous God. So look back into chapter 1, verse 10. As a reminder, if you, if you weren't here last week, as we covered this, we see the motives of what's taking place. The people are abiding in the covenant faithfulness of God. God's promises are faithful and true. And the people are being fruitful and multiplying. And that's led them, though, to say, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Lest, lest they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. That's their motive. And now in verse 22a, we see the method the method was going to be the Hebrew midwives taking care of business on their own, killing the boys. The birth announcement would be accompanied with a funeral, the death date, the execution. The Hebrew midwives fear God more than Pharaoh. They refuse to abide in his commands. And now Pharaoh, though, it says, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, so I can't trust these Hebrews to take care of this issue of national security, Instead, I need to take it to my own Egyptian people who know me and fear me. He says, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every of their daughters live. So when unpacking our proper expectations, we see two insights to those that don't know Christ. And, and you and me included, before we came to know and to worship the one true God, this describes our life. We see that the godless will prioritize convenient solutions to achieve their perceived greater good. The godless will prioritize convenient solutions first to achieve their perceived greater good. Notice perceived greater good. Because they don't know the one true God, their standards of those who don't know Christ, their standards are warped. Their perception of what is good is warped. It's their perceived greater good. This is what we know in our text today. He gives this command that will bring grave consequences. And, and I referenced last week, I'll, every week we're going to have to go back to Genesis as a reminder. Because if we just read this, if you're new to Exodus and, and new to the Scriptures, which is a wonderful thing, to come to the Scriptures with fresh eyes, we can read this and, and recognize the barbarism, the, the reality that they're going to kill, they're going to try to exterminate the Israelite people. And strategically, Pharaoh is thinking, well, we don't need to kill them all. Let's keep the girls alive and will absorb them into the Egyptian empire. Therein our population will multiply. Our kingdom will expand. But as we know the story of God, what will happen if Pharaoh's plan is successful? Not only would it be the end of the Israelite people, but it would make God a liar. For the promised Messiah will not be able to come from the line of Abraham. But God is faithful. God is faithful. And though godless Pharaoh will make plans of wickedness, the Lord will laugh at them. He makes this argument of one of convenience. It's, a, it's an argument of convenience. He uses the Nile River. The Nile River, commentator Douglas Stewart on this, he says the convenience of the Nile is uh, in this way. Virtually the entire population of Egypt live essentially on the banks of the Nile. 
the arable land in ancient Egypt being limited mainly to the area that was served directly by the Nile or with a complex irrigation system would be blessed by the Nile. So when Pharaoh gives the command to the Egyptian people, because he can't trust the Hebrews to take care of business for him, he gives the command to the Egypt people to cast the boys into the Nile River. It's a command of convenience. Everyone would have lived relatively close to the Nile. Very convenient. It was also a method of execution that would have been extremely clean. There's no barbaric tools, no rocks, no instruments, but rather simply taking the babies and tossing them into the river and let the rest be history, which of course would take place with either a predator from the Nile or simply the water itself taking them away. The godless prioritize convenient solutions for their own perceived greater good. So too do we, but by the good and gracious kindness of our God. And he would intervene in our lives that our lives aren't simply about some pragmatic solution to a problem. Because what's good for me, in my mind, may be very good from what you perceive it to be. And, and philosophers wrestle with this. What's the greater good? Is it what's good for me? Is it what's good for the greater population? What is good? That's what Pharaoh's doing. He's measuring it by what's good for the Egyptian empire. What's good, sadly, for the Hebrews will lead to the extermination of all the boys and the destruction of the Israelites before they'll ever enter the land that God promised to them. May this text at the very beginning set our expectations appropriately to never underestimate what man created in the image of God, the beauty that we looked at last week. Never underestimate what we can do, what man can do as our own gods. Never underestimate what we can rationalize by convenience. That's what we see in Pharaoh's heart. He will not be deterred. His, his heart is already hardening further. He could have stopped and seen it, but his heart is hard. Wayward apart from God. As we heard in Ryan's testimony a moment ago, we all fizzle differently. Our, our sin and our pride shows up in different ways, but our ability to rationalize sin is incredible. Convenience and progress, quick, clean, and close is the river. Think about how this would be if they had social media back then. How would this be proclaimed? The Egyptian NSA would come along perhaps to the Egyptian people and be able to share that the Hebrews will not take care of their own problems. So you as a good Egyptian citizen, it's your responsibility, your patriotic duty to secure our borders. These people have already come into our land. They're so numerous that if they align with a foreign power, they could overthrow and end our lives as a civilization as we know it. Now was the time to act before this next generation is born. This is a hard challenge, but together we can do it. Is it that hard to imagine something like that being said? Phrased in a patriotic way to get everybody on board? Never underestimate how easy it is. And when we look at a text, though, this is thousands of years old, we can look at it and think, well, they were so ignorant. They don't know what we know. But think about the amount of sin that's, that we rationalize and our culture rationalizes and we personally rationalize. To think very honestly here about the direct command that Pharaoh gives to execute the baby Hebrew boys to achieve the greater good, a greater life for yourself 
We don't even have to make a stretch of the application of the arguments that our culture makes for abortion today. That child is holding you back. That child in your womb will ruin your life. That child is preventing you from your greatest life, your dreams and your goals and your purposes. Tragedy has happened to you. Let us help you. Let us pay to help you in the tragedy so you can achieve the greater good of your life. The same arguments have not gone away thousands of years later, have they? And as believers, we don't say that with judgmental hearts, but we say that with God-fearing hearts. But by the grace of God go we, and every one of us, this is one of the reasons we, we so uh, in, embrace uh, these ministries to, to pregnant moms. And many of you, perhaps, you have had an abortion, or somebody that you know, we love them and want to serve them and wrap them into the life of the goodness of the gospel. Because God's way is better than any possible rationalized way that man could make up. Because true goodness is determined by Christ's likeness. Every culture and every, every civilization will have an idea of what is good and what it is to be fruitful and multiplying. But to, to decide that apart from our Creator and our Sustainer is a false good. It's how easily it can become an idol. And yet God's good for us is to conform us into the image of Christ. To trust that His ways are the better ways. This is God's command for our life. As we saw in Ryan's life, in every one of our lives as believers, is to, as those who have trusted Christ, to live out the light that we have in Christ. To live by faith that truly His way is better for our marriage and our hope and our goals and our desires and our dreams and our purposes and our pleasures. That we view them all through the lens of the Gospel. We see all of our life is about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And we never underestimate how He weaves these things together in our purposes. Two questions that were given on Thursday to help us, even though we shouldn't be surprised when those that don't know Christ live like they don't know Christ. As believers, we should be surprised when a fellow believer lives as though they don't know Christ. So the question becomes, how can I in my heart make sure I'm not rationalizing sin by issues of convenience? Ben Dotson spoke at our men's breakfast on Thursday morning. At 6.30, the coffee tastes really good there. And Ben gave this, this, this teaching to us from the Word on what it is to be a godly leader. And he gave two questions that he said he repeatedly asks himself, and I've done my best this week to try to ask myself these questions as well, and I want to give them to you because I think they're highly applicable as we ask the question, how can I make sure I don't worship the God of convenience? Here they are. Number one, am I treasuring Christ? This is a great question to ask yourself. If you're taking notes, I encourage you. This is a great one to ask. He said, on a daily, on an hourly basis, ask yourself, am I treasuring Christ? How that would minister to us. How Pharaoh's life would be different. Am I treasuring Christ? They would act with the fear of the Lord, just as the Hebrew midwives did. Am I treasuring Christ? And the second question is, am I participating in the story of God? So am I treasuring Christ? And if I'm treasuring Christ, I'm a participant in the story of God as He's working through life and working through my life to interact with others 
and to point them toward Christ. This is the privilege that the Spirit of God, by His Word and His loving people, gives us to, to bond to each other and to go forth making disciples. Faithfully reminding ourselves of the forgiveness and the hope that we have in Christ. So let us never be surprised when the lost act lost. And second, we see in this very first verse that the godless will also prop up convenient gods to suppress the truth. The godless will prop up convenient gods in order to suppress the truth. So there's convenient solutions and there's also convenient gods. The Nile was for the Egyptians and one of many gods. A God that sustained them with water and life and agriculture. And you think about the strategic brilliance of Pharaoh to come up with the method and means of execution to be the Nile River. What a burden for somebody, even for these, these Egyptians who do not know God. They're still created in His image. And the task to go into newborn. But to be able to come up with the Nile River as the means is genius from a strategic perspective. For not only would they be doing their patriotic duty to execute the child, but they would actually be giving a sacrifice to the Nile God. And they could also hold the Nile God responsible. They could give him the blame for if the child dies, then it was the will of the Nile God. Not theirs. They made a sacrifice and he accepted it. Or he'd rejected it. It's ironic, isn't it? How easy it is to rationalize sin. Psalm 96.5 tells us, but all the gods of the nations are but idols and demons. Realize the danger and the convenience of propping up a God in our image rather than being made in God's image. When you think about it, just consider for a moment a number of religions. Some religions hold that heaven and paradise will involve just a hedonistic amount of sexual activity. Does that sound like a kingdom not of this world as Scripture presents? Or does that sound like a religion made in the image of a couple guys? <laughs> Other religions hold that one becomes a god of their own universe. The power and the sovereignty that they can exercise. Does that sound like a religion not of this world? A kingdom religion? Or does that sound like a religion made in man's image? Other religions hold that heaven is simply, uh, or, or life after death, is simply the, uh, the aim to go and do better in the next life or to experience the consequences in this life in the next caste or system they find themselves in. That sounds like a works-based way to justify what we have or to justify a lack of compassion to others. And the most common religion growing right now in the West is the religion of the nuns. The religion of the I'm spiritual but not religious. What is that religion view of the afterlife? It's whatever you want it to be. What would you like it to be? Have it your way. If there was ever a religion that sounds made by man, it's that one. And yet the true God, the godless, will prop up convenient gods to suppress the truth and the love of their sin. They'll refuse to worship the triune God and ironically, they will make a God that they can justify their sin. They can hide. Anything will ultimately work to deny worship to the Lord through Jesus Christ. And those that will deny a God, they, they have no choice but to, but to create a standard of goodness and inevitably, if they deny the true God, government becomes God in enough time. 
The responsibility will become the government, the leaders to, to bring the way for utopia with whatever that looks like. You look through history, this is the case. Just give it enough time. These are how things unfold. It's here according to God's word. Simply put, expects those who do not know God or fear God to act like it. This will keep our prayers as believers to do what? What is our burden for the unbelieving world? How often do we look at the newspaper or watch the local news and we're taken aback at the brokenness of people who do not know God? Why are we shocked? Why do we see the state of politics or the state of any of the, the criminality in our culture or even in our own family dynamics and we, we watch the way we mistreat each other and we're shocked? Why are we shocked? We're acting outside the design of the Creator. People are, are going through life. What a try. I cannot imagine not knowing Jesus Christ and not having the standard of His Word, the measure and the rule, the canon of Scripture. The hopelessness that I would have and the brokenness and the sin that I would so easily be able to rationalize and not having a community walking in the same direction to love me enough to hold me accountable and give me hard truths. What purpose? What aim? That's our world. And so we ought not simply pray. We, we ought not look at the news and say, look what's happening. What a sad story. We shouldn't simply pray for behavior modification. See, this proper expectations set our hopes for our children and our world. How when we get tired at the end of the day, we could just hope that our children, you know what? I just hope they obey me. Right? Just obey me. Will you just obey And we turn our prayer for our children or our heart's desire is behavior modification. Not a new heart in Christ. Not Christ-likeness. And the same for our world. We pray for peace. Get along. But if they don't know the God of peace, how long can they get? That's the hope that we have in Christ alone. Believer, you have the good news of Jesus Christ. You have the message of the hope for Nacogdoches County, for our own families, and for the ends of the world. You have the hope in Christ. This is our command that God gives us. And He's uniquely sprinkled us and all the believers in our community around in different careers and different neighborhoods and different classes to fear Him and abide in His commandments, to rest in the finished work of Christ, and to point others to Jesus. So, the godless will prop up convenient gods. The godless will come up with convenient solutions. So we should expect that. But secondly, as we continue on through the heart of this text, we should expect that God to laugh at those who do not fear him. That's what we saw back at the beginning of the Psalm of David. In Psalm 37, 12 to 13, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at them. That's what we see at the beginning. Pharaoh's wickedness and plotting. And yet, but the Lord laughs at the wicked. We should expect God to laugh at those who do not fear him. Remember, just as Psalm 37 said, he knows the day that's coming. So the consequences that come upon those who mock God and create wicked plans against the righteous, the judgment may not come in how we see it in full in our lifetime. But we know it's coming. We know God's sovereign and good. This leads us, what I want to do is I want to point out three ironic twists in our text. Many more could be added as we walk through Exodus further, but let's look at three of these ironic God-laughing moments that we see humor in. 
The first goes through verse 4 of chapter 2 of Exodus. God chose a small Levite family to ruin Pharaoh's giant plans. Small little family. Being fruitful and multiplying. Thwarts Pharaoh's giant wicked plots. The Levites, as we know, would go on to be the smallest tribe of Israel. It's from the smallest tribe of Israel God will choose this little family to thwart his plans. He's already used the Hebrew midwives to spoil them, and now he uses a small family from the smallest tribe. That's the brilliance of our God. We have a man and his wife, and behold, to them a child will be given. Here Moses does not yet see fit to give us the names of his parents. And yet their impact, all of Israel would know. We too today know. For from this child would eventually come forth the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is good news for us, for Moses' mom could no longer trust that the Hebrew midwives would spare her child. But now that she's come to terms, she's forced, it says she was able to kind of hide him for three months. But now she's forced to put her baby boy into the hands of the unbelieving Egyptians. But it's good news that God is even sovereign over the unbelieving Egyptians. Amen? God is sovereign over the nations and all of creation, whether people bow their knee yet at this moment or not, because they will. Because He is God and we are not. And He's able to take this story, even of the Egyptians, and steer it just as a river in the direction it ought to flow. This is good news for us. He uses a small Levite family to ruin Pharaoh's giant plans. Now look at Miriam in verse 4. Miriam. As we look down to Miriam, we see specifically how Moses' mom, just before this, leads forth to build a little ark. This has to be on purpose. This has to be on purpose. We have Noah's ark in which God has Noah build the specific dimensions. And he covers it by God's command back in Genesis and, and, and bitumen and pitch. And I know what you're thinking. Of course we know what that is. And so I looked it up because I had no idea what, exactly what that is. Well, of course that's a uh, a black mixture of hydrocarbons obtained naturally from a pitch lake, or today as a residue from petroleum distillation. Of course we knew that, right? And so I still have no idea what that means, so I looked it up again. I had to click on Google Images. And it's also used as the stuff that fills the potholes in Nacogdoches. What I'm talking about? It lasts about 13 seconds till it goes out of the pothole, the first time somebody runs over it. But that's like the stuff that God has that, that, that uh, Moses' mom covers the outside of this little baby ark. And it's the same stuff that he commanded Noah to cover the ark that would bring creation, uh, or sustain creation and protect them from this global judgment. What a hint and a reminder that the same God who's sovereign and good and powerful and able to protect and provide for his, all of his creation through Noah and his family, so too can he protect this little baby given over into the hands of a people commanded to kill them by the ways of the waters of judgment. So there they go. It's ironic, isn't it, that God would use water to judge Egypt with the closing of the sea rather than little Moses, who would lead them through the sea. Miriam enters stage left. 
This little girl is the perfect age. She's old enough that it wouldn't look suspicious for a woman to not be serving as a slave. But she's, and she's young enough to not draw them at, uh, uh, their attention away, but she's old enough in this way to be mature enough and courageous enough to play this role of saving this boy. It's kind of funny, isn't it, that Miriam and Aaron are the ones we would think they're gifted to speak, they're courageous to speak. But who does God appoint to lead forth the Israelites from captivity? Moses, the one with the, some kind of speech impediment. God's good and he's faithful. He uses this little family to accomplish his big purposes. Beloved, never underestimate how God works in our lives, even in the context of the home. The faithful long hours of the parent and the grandparent and the aunt and the uncle uh, and the youth leader to pour into the life of the little ones. It's a lot of sowing to not see fruit, perhaps, that may not even come in your lifetime. But this unnamed father and unnamed mother trained up children well enough in the way of the Lord that it would change Israel's entire destiny. I won't forget what Megan Powell said on the Midweek Podcast some time ago. She said she had, she had heard and she gave this quote of, she believes that the light that will go furthest shines brightest at home. The time and the hours discipling and training and disciplining and loving and, and providing for her children. Never underestimate that step. So if you are new to the faith or you've never partaken of family worship, you ask questions. We want to help equip you to read the Bible and to pray with your family and to cultivate the best we can a godly way of discipleship and discipline in the way of the Lord. Never underestimate what the Lord can do. This leads us in verse 5 through 8 to see that God chose Pharaoh's own daughter to upend Pharaoh's plans. Not only did he choose a small Levite family to ruin Pharaoh's giant plans, but he, he chose Pharaoh's own daughter to upend Pharaoh's plans. This is incredible. Now, what are the chances that this happens? The text says in verse 5, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. What are the chances that she happened to walk down while little Moses was there in the reeds? Of all women, it's Pharaoh's daughter. What are the chances of that? It's pretty good, right? Now she walked down because she wanted to walk down. But God is sovereign and good. We'll see that the baby will cry at just the right time. What are the chances that the baby cries at just the right time? Part of the difficulty of seeing the sovereignty of God is its hindsight, isn't it? We can think of it in our lives. You can think of it in Ryan's testimony of COVID bringing him back here to Nacogdoches and then hearing the gospel message and his heart being pierced. You can think of your own story of when you met Christ and all the ways the Lord worked. Or through tragedy, I remember your story, Brad, and how you shared about your, your motorcycle accident. Never underestimate the sovereignty of God. The challenge of the sovereignty of God is we often don't see it until it's hindsight, but the beauty of the sovereignty of God is it gives us certainty to walk by faith today and have an assurance of tomorrow. The God who's all-knowing and powerful. God chose Pharaoh's own daughter to upend the plans. Miriam comes in, not simply observing. To tell, it doesn't tell us exactly. So we don't know if, if her mom told her, go and watch and tell me what happens. We don't know if that's what's mean, meant here or if Moses' mom that was going to go give a report, if she said, hey, go try and make sure everything is taken care of. 
try to step in. So we don't know if this was just the self-willed courage of this little girl or not. But she sees that Moses, her little baby brother, is discovered. And she steps in with courage, with her life on the line and her brother's life on the line. She steps in and look what she says. This is incredible. She took pity on him, verse 6. And when she opened it, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. By the way, that's godly nurturing compassion that all of creation has that we should look at and, when, and nurture that. That's beautiful. So, so, so took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister, she sees this unfold. She enters in with boldness and she comes right in to serve. Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child, this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, she gives her this great commission. Go. And so the girl went and called the child's mother. Miriam enters and says, hey, good news. I know of somebody that could be a wet nurse for this baby. It's his mom. Leaves that part out. But God laughs at the plans of the wicked, doesn't he? We should expect those who don't know God to live godlessly. And we should expect God to laugh at the plans of the wicked. And we could stop there, but we will go on to verse 9 and 10 for the ultimate kicker. God chose Pharaoh's own fortune to nourish Israel's deliverer. Not only will he use the smallest family, he's already used the Hebrew midwives to thwart them, they who walked in fear of him by their own desires and God's blessing. We see the smallest family from the smallest tribe. That's hilarious. And now we see his own daughter is going to adopt this baby. But to put it over the top, because Pharaoh's daughter wants the best for her child, she will pay to have him breastfed. Remember, this is before formula or anything like that. To not have this baby fed will be certain death. The beauty in the miracle of breastfeeding and breast milk and the antibodies that will come in and protect this little boy. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. Can you imagine Moses' mom's reaction when she comes back carrying the baby? Do you think she was like, what'd you do? I can't hide him any longer. But she's able to come back and, and give him and embrace Moses, hold her baby boy, and nurse him and Miriam's able to give the message that, don't worry, you can feed him until he's weaned, which could be two to three years is the best I could find, some up to five years. It's all the way until he's through preschool. She would nurse him and be paid by Pharaoh's own treasury, the same treasury that the Israelites would leave through the Red Sea with. Is our God not good? He's got a good sense of humor, doesn't he? That's the kindness of our God. So a question comes to us, will I trust the, the things and the ways of God over my ways? Will my expectations be set appropriately? I want to ask you three questions before we walk into our next steps. Number one, have you trusted him with your sins? We see how he works in all these, um, these this seems an unimaginable situation for God to take care of Israel, and yet he does. So my question that we have to ask each and every one of us, have I entrusted my sin to God? Or am I still trying to figure that one out on myself? Number two, have you trusted him with discerning true joy and pleasure? Whose purpose are you living for? 
Are you trying to live for your own pleasures and your own purposes? Number three, have you trusted him with your priorities and your very purpose in life? Or are you still trying to do that on your own? Look at the beauty that unfolds when a people fear God, because God always keeps his promises. In our next steps, I want to read for you chapter 2, verse 23. I want to read for you chapter 2, verse 23, which tells us the end of Pharaoh, who commanded the death of Moses and these children. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. Nameless in this account, he died. And he met the judgment of God. In Psalm 37, the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day. Pharaoh met the Lord in judgment. And in the end, he will be raised and receive a new body, and he will be cast forever into the lake of fire. How does that strike you? How does that move you this morning? Three ways that I could think of in meditating on this text. Part of me says, yes, God's judgment upon this wicked one. And yet then very quickly after that, I am met with a a sense of gratefulness and humility because but by the grace of God, I deserve God's perfect judgment. That's what I would ask you this morning. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you've only known about Him, will this day you repent from your sin and give your life to Jesus Christ? Ask Him to forgive you and give you new life by way of Jesus Christ on the cross who lived a sinless life and died on the cross and rose again, would you place your trust in Him this day, this moment? Say, God, forgive me of my sins. I believe that Jesus lived a sinless life and died on the cross and rose again. I give my life to You. I want to live for You and know You. Become a child of God this day. The second, for those of us who do know Christ, will you pursue others in prayer? We have proper expectations for the lost, but then we ought to pray for the lost, that they would come to know Christ. The burden, the chaos we see in our culture and the world should move us to pray that they would come to new life, new hearts. And third, will you pursue others in personal evangelism and missions? Pursue others. God's already placed you, not by accident where He's placed you. And not by accident in this season of history. Pursue others. Ask God to give us fresh eyes and to look around and pursue others. Charles Spurgeon said this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees and implore them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. What a beautiful command and life that God has given us. And I've netted these things into this third component of a next step. Would you write out this week, write out a personal testimony of how you previously lived by the foolishness, what was foolish to God. You saw the ways of God as foolishness. I'll give you two references there. One in the psalm that we looked at and one in 1 Corinthians 1. You once lived by what was foolish to God, but the foolishness of God became life to you. He opened your eyes and showed you grace. 
Would you write down that story of how the things that were once foolish have now become life? And would you take boldness and share that with someone this week? Is he worthy of our praise? He's worthy of our life. He's good and faithful. I can think of no better song to sing in a song of response to this, to make this the very prayer of our life as a church family. Know that we'll have ministry leaders up here at the end of the congregational prayer that we'll love to counsel you and pray with you and celebrate you if you've just come to Christ. We love you. Would you stand as we sing together?